I'm Erin Chapman, Miss Elite Canada 2021, and this is my interview with The Pageant Project. Hello everyone, it's Adrian from The Pageant Project and our special guest for today is Erin Chapman who's Miss Elite Canada 2021. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, I'm so excited to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you on, you were featured in, I was going to say our book, but it's using the royal we, it's my book, which is over there, but the, the thick, thick, thick tome. Erin, uh, whereabouts in Canada are you coming to us from? I am coming live from the capital of Canada, which is Ottawa, Ontario, which fun fact is also home to the world's largest skating rink. How big is it? Um, it's like 7.8 kilometers, I believe. It's the Rideau Canal. So in the summer, it's where I kayak and I run and rollerblade. And then in the winter, it turns into this giant outdoor skating rink. And that's how I get to work, which is the most Canadian thing ever. Well, hang on, you, you kayak to work or you skate to work? I skate to work in the winter. Kayaking to work is a little bit, um, well, there's more steps. So I, I just saved that for a fun activity. It's such a Canadian thing. Or maybe it's just the fact that I'm from Australia. It's, it boggles my mind that you can use the same, the same canal in one season to kayak and in another season to skate. Because as you know, I'm from Australia, nothing here freezes over. So well, it's literally the same body of water. And in one season, you're doing this. Yes, and, and then they drain it for season. the winter. Yeah. So they drain it so the ice is pretty thin. And then they maintain it so that people can go skating. And then there used to be this big charity event where they put little plastic ducks. And when they reflooded the canal, whoever's duck made it from one end of the canal <laughs> to the other end fastest won a prize. I don't know if they do it anymore, especially not with COVID. But yeah, the canal is big in Ottawa. So I'm assuming you never won the plastic duck race. No, unfortunately not. No. Okay. No. That's a shame. Uh, Ralph here is saying good evening. Sendal is hello, Adrian. Hello, Aaron and Rachel. Hello, guys. Hope you're having a good week. Uh, also, for you guys watching in Ireland or the UK, it's St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patrick's Day to you guys, at least for me. For you guys, it's Ours tomorrow. Ours is tomorrow. Cause yeah, because yeah, I'm in the future and you guys, you guys, I have to remember that. Um, and my name actually Aaron, means Ireland. Aaron Gobra, Ireland forever. So my name means Ireland. So I guess it's fitting. Well, that's, uh, that's a neat coincidence. I never, mm -hmm. I never planned that. Um, Aaron, can we start by, as I mentioned to you, I was listening to your podcast um, and also watching your, the interview that you did with Regine. Was it a few days ago? A few weeks ago? I don't remember. A few weeks ago. Yes. Okay. Um, and you guys covered a lot in Regine's interviews. So I don't want to cover all the same stuff and have you talk about all the same stuff because you probably get bored out of your brain. All I'll say is if you want to see the interview that Erin um, did with Regine, uh, what, what would be the best thing to search up? What was the name of um, her interview? The Pageant Sit Down would be the best place. Okay. All right. Um, or look up Regine, uh, Regine Elena, I believe it is, on Instagram, and I'm sure you'll be able to see it through there. But I did want to bring you up on Putin. Is it Putin? Putin? Putin. Putin. Okay. I have this argument every time with whenever I have anyone that knows anything about Canada. And mm. I've got to say, it's like our Vegemite. Canadians are divided on it. Not every Canadian loves it. Can you describe first off to our viewers or to our listeners what Putin is? Sure. So Putin is a national dish in Canada. It's originated in Quebec. Um, I'll actually give you a bit of a brief history about Putin is in Quebec, someone went to a restaurant and asked their waiter for fries with gravy on top and cheese curds. In Canada, we don't do, we have sprinkled cheese, but we have like squeaky cheese and they're called mm -hmm. cheese curds. And so the waiter said, quel poutine, which means what a bizarre combination. And it just took off. So we have little chip wagons um, everywhere throughout the city. It's kind of like a late night food. Like if you've gone out with your friends for the evening, at 2 a.m., everyone's like, okay, it's poutine time. So the traditional is French fries, gravy, and cheese curds, but now there's additions with pulled pork and bacon, and you name it, it's in a poutine. 
Okay, so the poutine that I had, and I was near Quebec, and I think I was actually in Quebec, it seemed to me, like, the fries weren't done particularly well. They were greasy. And then they were drenched in gravy, and then there was cheese over the top, and everything went kind of... I like to eat reasonably healthy, and to me, it was just like, I can't do it. It just felt like I was literally eating a heart attack. So did they do it wrong, or was that what it's supposed to be? A big no, that's grease? what it's supposed to be. It is your greasy spoon diner food like instead of just getting french fries at diners there's always an upgrade to make it a poutine it is not supposed to be a healthy snack and that's why it's so good and canadians love it especially in the cold <laughs> it gives us that extra layer of fat to protect ourselves from the temperature well i i, I don't need that extra layer of fat i mean um, <laughs> lockdown has already done that for me i don't i don't need another other layer um so has it been it's sort of like sounds like hangover food then it's kind of like when people other people like here in australia would go for a kebab it sounds like after a big night out go and have a poutine yes poutine is an all year all time of day kind of food but it's definitely great after a night out and the next morning for sure yeah where can you get the best poutine in canada that depends who you ask i'm from ottawa so i'm always going to say the elgin street diner elgin street is it's downtown, but it's an entire street full of restaurants and the diners open 365, 24-7 and everything can be upgraded to a poutine. There's a show in Canada called You Gotta Eat Here. It's kind of like um, Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, but Canadian. And um, the host went to Elgin Street Diner and got their hangover breakfast is what they call it. So it is your bacon, your eggs, your toast and a poutine. So it's the... It's like an English breakfast, so the, the, the kind of fried stuff that's good to, to help you when you're struggling. Yeah. And then poutine added to it. Of course. Yes. It's wow. so good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I would say I, poutine and beaver tails are the two foods you need to get when you come to Ottawa. Well, okay, I'm going to assume. I don't, I don't know what beaver tails are. I'm going to assume it's not you don't a beaver. literally mean. Okay. No. What's a beaver tail? So a beaver tail is a puff pastry and it's shaped like a beaver tail. So a giant oval, I guess, and they deep fry okay. it. So it comes out all nice and crispy and it's thin and then they do different toppings. So cinnamon sugar is kind of the base. They do Killalo Sunrise, which is cinnamon, sugar and lemon. I like garlic butter and cheese, Nutella, Oreo, you name it. And Obama for his first inauguration called them Obama tails and he put a giant whipped cream O on them. So it's a pastry. So, they have them all over Canada. So they can be sweet and savory because you said you like yeah. garlic butter and cheese. Mm -hmm. That's the only savory one, but it's so good. They're delicious. That, that sounds, yeah, that sounds like something that I could do. Beaver tails. But mm -hmm. And in the canal that I mentioned, um, when we're skating in the winter, they even put huts on the ice. So you skate from one hut to the other and get a hot chocolate and a beaver tail. How how big are beavers? We don't have them here in Australia. Not that I know of. I could be wrong. But how, how big is a beaver, roughly? So I've never actually seen a beaver in person. They're not as common <laughs> as most people think. It's okay. like, You're just I eating guess their if tails. I was like, yeah, like, oh, if I go to Australia, am I going to see a kangaroo crossing the street? I assume it's maybe the same. But I would say they're like mid-size, like a, a medium dog, I guess. Oh, wow. They're not, okay. they're not rodent size, but they're not enormously large. Yeah. I thought I was thinking more rodent size, so that's a lot bigger than I was thinking. Okay. Um, so we're talking about food, so that probably is a good point to segue to you do a lot of sports, and maybe it's in part <laughs> to work off the beaver tails and the poutine, probably. I don't know. But um, you've been doing your own podcast, um, which I mentioned before. Um, it's called the You Go Girl podcast, am I correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so why don't we segue smoothly into all things sports? Um, For sure. I used to be a tennis coach. I'm still, I love tennis. I, I was listening to your podcast, as I mentioned, and you were talking a lot about uh, Bianca, how do you pronounce her name? And Andrescu? Uh, Bianca Andrescu. Okay, yes. which is probably not the most typical Canadian name. I think she might have been from Romania or her parents were from Romania. But um, talk to us about all things sport and in particular how you started the podcast. Absolutely. So my mother was a professional dancer. And when I was one and a half years old, she caught me climbing a bookshelf and was like, my child needs an outlet. So she put me in dance and I started competing when I was five years old. So sport has always been huge in my life. 
I now work for the Canadian Paralympic Committee. So every day at work, it's about Canadian athletes and broadcasting sport. And since being physically active has been a huge part of my life, when I was preparing for Miss World Canada two years ago, because I've competed the past three years, I was thinking, what's a project that I'm very passionate about for my beauty with a purpose? Mm -hmm. And I went to the pageant and I said, if I were to win, I would love to do a cross Canada tour and visit schools and introduce little clips of different sports because I never thought I was athletic growing up, even though I was dancing 25 to 30 hours a week because I didn't excel in gym class. I wasn't good at running or basketball or volleyball or soccer. So that's where it started. And then training for this year, I thought, okay, well, I can't come back with just an idea. So I started hosting monthly workshops in Ottawa where once a month young girls could come and try a different sport for free with no barriers. So month one was hip hop with someone who was on the Amazing Race Canada and one of my cheer sisters because we both yeah. cheered for um, professional football leagues in Canada. Um, the second was yoga. And then March 2020 was supposed to be Taekwondo when obviously the pandemic hit. So it from there, it was like, I don't want to stop this project. I'm so passionate mm -hmm. about it. And then I was thinking about Bianca Andrescu and how many girls she inspired when she was winning everything in tennis and young girls yeah. were like, I've never seen a Canadian girl do that. So if she can, maybe I can too. So thus the You Go Girl Project podcast was born every week for the past, well, 39 weeks as of tomorrow. Um, I've interviewed a different Canadian women in sports so she can tell me about her story and give words of encouragement to women all across Canada and beyond advice about just getting out there and maybe trying sports you didn't even think were imaginable. And then from there, the third part of it was I wrote a children's book and I'm currently working with an illustrator. We have our storyboard all set to go. So it's going to be a set of children's books where there are little girls who have a problem and they find their solution through sport. So that will be coming soon. Do you have a title for the book yet that you can share with us? Yes, yeah, so the first book is called Ronnie the Rock Climber. Um, it is slightly named after my grandpa, Ron, because he's so close to me, but it's still a girl's name. And this young girl loves to read adventure books and dreams of going on adventures. And she tries climbing a tree and falls out and goes, okay, maybe that's not for me. And then she finds rock climbing and every day she can go up a different pattern on a wall. So maybe one day she's imagining herself climbing a mountain or hang gliding as she comes down from the ropes. And so that's the book. And from the illustrations that I have seen from my illustrator, it's going to be very good. So I'm very excited about that. I know a little bit about publishing books, obviously. And I, I heard on one of your other interviews that you switched illustrators. Um, I've never worked with an illustrator for the books that I do. But um, I think you said you brought on one of, one of your friends to do the illustrations. Yes. Um, so the first illustrator... It just wasn't a, a good fit. So I yeah. know that one of my friends, um, she's in school for graphic design and I've hired her to do a few things for me. Um, my mom's birthday, 2020 in January, I was going to surprise her with a trip to England for three weeks because my mom grew up in England and in Japan. So I got my friend wow. to like draw pictures, cartoon caricature style of my mom in a plane and getting her eyelash extensions done and her mani-pedi before the trip. So I know her work is, impeccable especially for someone who's just starting out so I get to start supporting a local business supporting a friend and giving her experience for her portfolio as well and um, how are you doing in terms of getting your mom into a pageant the process is there uh, my mom has gone through significant weight loss so I think she's just kind of getting used to her own body but I want her to do the galaxy pageant some point right. i think she would love it she's meant for the stage being a professional dancer and my granny so her mom supports it completely so someday mama c will grace the pageant stage and she's just going to be all smiles because that's who she is as a person i um interviewed i had one of the uk girls on the podcast and she was trying to get her mom involved and while she was on the podcast live her mom walked in through the door behind her and said that she insisted that she wasn't going to do it Fast forward to now, this is about six months later, she's now just put up her Instagram reel about how her preparation for her pageant <gasps> is going. And I'm not going to say she's got more support than her daughter, but it'd be a close, it'd be a close fit. So it does take time. 
it takes time yes. um, to, to each Siren. Have you given any thought to what happens if she wins a title and you don't have one? Are you too competitive um, at all? I know you're close, but. My mom and I are the exact same person. Um, we're two peas out of a pod. At any given time, you can catch us dancing anywhere, whether there's music or not. She's my only COVID bubble. So for the past year, it's just been the two of us doing stuff and we operate on the same wavelength. So if she wins a title, you bet your bottom dollar, I'm gonna be screaming my head off. I'm gonna be like, okay, let's start booking your appearances. Let's start training for your international. She just deserves the world because she's given me the world. Yeah, pageant mums are a special breed. Uh, that That's for sure. Nothing against She's not even a pageant mom, mom though. She's she's no. so supportive. No, my mom's watched all my pageants online. She's never been to one. So oh, we'll okay. get there. Um, she's just a supportive mom. Anything I want to do, she's like, yep, let's do it. I'll be there. What's the craziest what's the craziest idea that you've had that she's been supportive of? Well, this one might be controversial but I used to compete in pole fitness competitions before I threw my shoulder out. Um, so most people immediately go to like, oh my goodness, strippers, but no, it's the most intense workouts. I did aerial hoops, silks, hammocks, pole, trapeze, you name it. And she was there at showcases, at performances, at comp international competitions, cheering me on. So I'd say that's pretty I crazy for most people. I, I had a friend, um, I have a friend who was a yoga instructor. And then as a sort of a side sport, she took up pole fitness. And um, the pole studio that she was working at, because she eventually became an instructor as well, she was helping the, the pole aficionados go through yoga and help increase their flexibility. Um, it was all women. Down, I actually interviewed the owner down to the point where even the cleaners who came in had to be women so that the women felt safe and not, not, objective, not objectified in any way. But it's not easy. I mean, I think it has a lot in common with dance in terms of you have to try and make it look easy. But the the, the strength you need to hold a pose like that and silks and hammocks, I, I have tried a couple of things like that with um, with bands. And just the fact that there's nothing stable to hold on to and you end up shaking, it's, it's very, very good at highlighting how functionally strong you actually are. Um, so that stuff is, is not easy at all. Um, but I, I want to take you back to, you said gym class and you said you didn't excel in gym class. I, I'm the same. I, the one thing I remember from gym class in school was that the PE, told, the PE teacher, the sports teacher told me that I threw like a girl and he didn't mean that as a compliment. Mind you, this was a ways back. So back then it wasn't yeah. such a big deal. If he said it, now he'd probably be fired and rightly so. But can you talk us through your experience in gym class? Because you're, you're doing a podcast now interviewing amazing athletes. Just back us up for a second and say, who were you in gym class? I've always been someone that I'm so confident with myself, I'm blissfully unaware. So it was never a thing that I was like, oh, I'm terrible at this. It just wasn't my thing. I know when they told us to run laps, I was like, please, no, not again. And you see the people who are always at the front and I'm just kind of speed walking in the back like, yep, I'll get there. Um, <laughs> in, in middle school, I remember we'd warm up with basketballs for like 15, 20 minutes, just dribbling, shooting, and kids would just throw them at my head. Cause I was, I'm 5'10 now, but I was very short until grade 10. Um, and then I went to an all girls private school, eight through 12. And that was totally mm -hmm. different because everyone was on the same playing field. Um, there was no competition with boys. Our, my entire grade was 27 girls. So gym class was maybe like oh, wow. 15. Um, yeah, I just don't really have the hand-eye coordination for things like that. You mentioned tennis at work. We do a tennis ladder every summer, and I go for fun. Um, am I good? Nope, not at all, but it's still nice to get out there. So I think growing up, I enjoyed gym class because I just loved to move. I was not good. Yeah. Like, dodgeball was fun, but I knew if I threw the ball, I wasn't hitting anyone. Same with basketball. Volleyball was okay, but I always got my allergy testing during volleyball season, so I couldn't bump because I had all the pricks on my arm. Um, so it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I just looked at all the other kids who really excelled in gym class. Like they had that innate athletic ability. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'm not one of them, but I had six pack abs cause I was dancing 25 to 30 hours a week. But most kids don't consider dance a sport because it's so artistic, but it is. That, that, 
That's interesting. I mean, I know you, I think you asked this on your podcast, um, at least the episode I listened to, I think you were interviewing a dancer and you asked her whether she thought of a dance as a sport. Um, my, my immediate response to that was absolutely yes. If you're looking at it in terms of the dedication it takes and the fitness it takes, sure, definitely. And the fact that you have to, again, make it look effortless and easy in my head just makes it harder. Um, can you speak at all to why maybe you didn't see dance as a sport or other people around you? I mean, given that you're doing 25 to 30 hours a week, it's not a small commitment. No, um, I never went to birthday parties growing up. I wasn't allowed to ski or skate for a Canadian that's huge because I was always at dance. Um, I think most people don't view it as a sport because they see it as an art. They see the beauty of it and they see that effortlessness, but they don't know how much goes behind the scenes. Mm. You see a ballerina on stage and you're like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. But there's a reason dancers can't be professional dancers usually after their 30s it breaks your body down your toes bleed all the time you sweat so much you work so hard but people just see the beauty of it it's the same with mm. you know maybe rhythmic gymnastics or figure skating you just see the beauty whereas football you're like okay they're hitting each other it's definitely a sport hockey it's high contact but with dance you don't see all the preparation you just see the art so i think dance comes in two forms there's like the fitness aspect and the art aspect, but most people when they see dance are only seeing the art because they don't see do it again, turn out more, stretch your knee, point your toe, your arm wasn't straight enough. Um, even I teach dance and just last night in my class, we did the start and stop game. So anytime I made a mistake, stopped the music, made the correction and restarted the routine again. So people don't see that, but that's what makes dance so beautiful is that there's so many hours behind the scenes, but then the audience can just sit back and enjoy the performance. Kind of like pageants, I guess. Well, I, I've seen photos of ballerinas' feet, and um, there is some commonality between what pageant, what you guys, pageant girls, put your subject your feet to. But ballerinas' feet, I've it. God, it's they're not pretty. Like if you didn't have if you didn't have adult consent, it'd be like it's, it's borderline abuse. I mean, can you give as someone who's never danced and hopefully, pray to God, never will? Can you give us an idea of how hard dance is on the body? So, for example, even in tennis, it used to be the wisdom that you wouldn't play past thirty, and then in recent years, you know, you got your Djokovic, your Nadal, your Federer talking about art, someone who makes something look effortless. You know, Federer is closing in on 40 and still one of the best in the game, certainly one of the most popular in the game. How hard is dance on the body? It is terribly hard, um, especially for me. I'm trained in all different styles, you know, ballet, tap, jazz, modern, contemporary, hip hop, lyrical, you name it. Um, tap especially, that's what I teach right now this year. It's really tough on your shins, your ankles and your knees. So that you have mm. to get used to, you have to really build up the muscle there, especially for things, um, toe stands and tap, which are comparable to point shoes for ballerinas. If your ankles aren't strong, you can't support yourself. Um, for specifically point shoes, I remember they make these things called ouch pouches and they're these little gel pads that go over your toes, which is newer technology. But back in the day, they used to just put lamb's wool in the box of the point shoe. So the only thing on your foot is this little bit of wool. And when I started point at nine, which is a little bit younger than you're supposed to, that's all mm. we had. So you have to get used to that pain. Um, Marks aren't naturally turned out. So, you know, a dancer in ballet for outwards. It doesn't start from it's the hips and rotating the back. So if you think of the hip saw, rotate thigh back, it grinds down. In your posture, your tailbone has to be tucked under, your rib cage has to be closed. So you're fighting everything that your body wants to do naturally, even the way you stand with your posture and carrying your arms. So doing that repetitive motion over and over and over again, it does start to break down the body. And, you know, landing jumps is tough on the knees, mm. different things like that. Um, it depends on the dancer. Like I have shoulder injuries from cheerleading too much being in tight little uniforms that weren't made for girls who are five foot 10 and doing lots of arm motions. Um, that's my injury, but some girls it's the knees or the back or the feet. Do you do any sports that are not high impact? It sounds like you're doing all the sports that are best to, to break your body down. They sound painful. 
they're painful, but they're so much fun. Um, I wouldn't say I do necessarily sports, but I do a lot of different types of physical activity. I absolutely adore roller skating. I roller skate down the canal. I love running, kayaking, rock climbing. I'll do anything. Like if, if someone says, hey, do you want to go do this with me? I'm there. I'll go to the reading of a phone book if it means doing something. <laughs> that's that's fair enough. Um, so in terms of the podcast, I mean, we talked a little bit about your your sporting background and how you got into doing the podcast. Um, you, you've done, I think it's what, close to 40 episodes or is it actually 40 episodes now? Tomorrow will be number 39 and then I have my 40th booked. Right. Okay. So I, I love getting to talk to someone who's actually interviewed a lot of people as well, because that doesn't happen very often. Who has been, what's been the biggest surprise? If I can get you to think back to episode one through episode 38 at the moment, or th 39 if you've recorded it, um, what has been, what have been the biggest surprises or biggest facts that you've just gone, wow, I can't believe that's true? Yeah, I would say there's two things that jump out of my mind. The first is the passion of these women who talk about their sports. Like, I know I'm passionate about it, but to hear someone else talk about specifically their sport and their journey. And I found that it's happened with the athletes who I've interviewed who are a little bit older, like maybe in their late mm -hmm. 30s, early 40s. I feel like I'm getting a personal TED talk when I'm on Zoom with them. I just feel so much energy coming from them. And they thank me after because with COVID, you're always talking to the same people. You don't get that interaction. Yeah which yeah. is great to share. And the second thing is I recently interviewed Mia St. Oban and she's the Move Collective episode. And she read a book called, I think it was Do Less. And it talks about how women can harness the power of their menstrual cycle for better productivity. Like there, I haven't read the book, so I'm just paraphrasing what she said, but there's different sure. points in your cycle where, okay, this is the planning stage. This is the doing phase phase this is the reflection phase and finding that out i was like how is this not taught to young girls in sex education class from a young age like we are different than men we're not supposed to be men we're not supposed to go on the same kind mm. of schedule as men let's harness what we have to make to make the best of our situation and use that power to progress our lives so that was something that i was like i had no idea that that was a thing Oh, and I guess my third is um, how small the sport world is. So the very first episode I ever recorded was with Mar. She was on the Amazing Race Canada, and she was a cheerleader for the Argos. I was a cheerleader for the Red Blacks. And she's one of my closest friends, my next-door neighbor, and she hosted the first workshop, the hip-hop one, in person. Uh -huh. And a few weeks ago, my pageant sister in Calgary goes, I have someone who I think you should interview. Her name is Leanne. And I go... Leanne and Mar were partners on The Amazing Race Canada, and they were both on Argos together. But my pageant sister in Calgary made the connection with this other girl who's friends with my neighbor. So that was something cool as well. Have you, in any of the interviews, spoken to the particular difficulties that women can sometimes have in sport, um, particularly getting into competitive sport or elite sport, versus maybe what the men face because i mean I, as i told you i worked as a tennis coach in actually a private girls school so similar to yourself and um, when you're talking about eight through 12 uh and i gotta tell you like if one of the girls wanted to go professional as a tennis player it wouldn't be too different with tennis but it certainly would be different to a guy doing it just the whole competitive thing for a start even back then 10 years ago um, a, a competitive girl was not necessarily seen by everyone as a good thing. I'd like to think it's getting closer to that now. But have you come across any stories uh, or mentions of particular difficulties that women face, female athletes face that males don't? Yes. Um, something that comes to mind was my boxing interview with Claire, Classy Claire. Mm -hmm. And especially with boxing, it's not really a female dominated sport and she came into boxing a little bit later in her life so she said that being a little bit older helped her but the worlds can be a little bit toxic so you have to be careful especially in the female boxing world you're either viewed as this hyper masculine butch kind of boxer yeah. or you're the pretty blonde girl who wears you're the Barbie. scantily clad boxing yeah Barbie. exactly yeah. so she said you have to be careful in that world 
I've also had um, the poll interview with Libby Ives. She talked about how some people in the community maybe are doing like gaslighting other mm. competitors. There's a lot of bullying that goes on. A lot of people have talked about the mental health with body dysmorphia, which I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of women, including myself, deal with is just mm -hmm. the way that we view our bodies and the way that people tell us our body should look like in a competitive sport industry. So there've been a lot of things, but on the podcast, I always ask them to follow it up with a message to younger girls. So even though these are things that we're dealing with right now, these are the leaders in our sport community, our sport community today. So how can we make the changes to the problems that we're facing and encourage young girls to do something different so that we don't have to face this, these problems in 20 to 30 years? Well, I'm glad that you, you've asked them that uh, your interview is that question because I, I want to ask you out of all the ones who've, I mean, you, you must have been inspired probably every episode if, you, if what you're doing or who you're interviewing is, is similar to myself at all. What, what's been the most inspirational piece of advice that, that comes immediately to mind? Because I got to say, back when I was a tennis coach, what would really frustrate me is girls would not want to be sporty because A, it's not pretty. Like, God forbid you sweat. Like, oh, I don't want to sweat. That's not pretty. Or B, the other thing was they'd be really worried that they'd get, in terms of body dysmorphia, big muscles. Like overnight, suddenly they're going to look like a dude, they would say, which i got to tell you doesn't happen. That takes a lot of hard work. No. Um, but what's been the most inspirational advice that you've heard from your interviewees? First of all, I will just tell anyone listening that I sweat when I work out. And if you're not sweating, you're not working hard enough. So it's a good thing. It means you're getting 100%. the body moving and the muscles warm. Yeah. So never be afraid to sweat. Um, I think something that stands out is that every single interview, when I ask the girls how to get other girls involved in sport, every single one of them have said, just try it. It doesn't matter if it's my axe throwing episode, powerlifting, horseback riding, dance, pole, aerials. Everyone says, just give it a try. If you need to grab a friend and say, hey, let's go do a give it a go day. Mm. Just go out there and try it because what do you have to lose? If you don't like it, okay, it was one hour of your life. But what if you love it? What if it opens up a community? What if it opens up job opportunities? I never thought I'd be mm. sitting here talking to you today about sport. If you asked me in high school, would I still be physically active? Would I be working for the Canadian Paralympic Committee? Would I be interviewing women on a podcast talking about sport? I would have said no, mm. but I just gave it a try. And that's the most important thing that I've heard in these podcasts, and it's consistent week from week. Have you heard that in, in with your interviewees, do, had, did, when they went to try this sport for the first time, uh, their sport, did they tend to be the sort of person who needed to drag a friend along? Have you noticed that they have a really strong support network? Or have you noticed that they tend to be like the, the alpha A-type, a I'm going to do this and I don't need anyone to do it and I don't care what you think? Or has it been 50-50? I would say 50-50. Um, I've heard some stories of like, especially dancers, I was put in dance when I was two to three years old and I'm still in it. Mm. I've heard yeah. people who said, I started off in this sport um, and then I reached university and the opportunities weren't as big. So I transitioned into this sport. There's been a lot of transition. Um, like one of my friend who's the illustrator for my children's book has been on the podcast um, talking about CrossFit, but she started out as a synchronized swimmer then rode in university and now does CrossFit and Olympic style weightlifting. So that has mm. changed. And then there was a martial arts episode with a girl named Maeve. And she actually got into her sport because her friend brought her to a give it a go day. So it's very mixed bag, which I think is important for people to hear. You shouldn't be finding your sport at age two or three. If you do, that's great. But you could be 50 years old and find a sport tomorrow. Just mm. give it a go. Just try it. Well, CrossFit in itself is barely maybe 10 years old. I mean, it's fairly mm -hmm. new in the sport world and it absolutely exploded and, and took off. Um, what's been the most unusual sport that that you've had someone on to talk about? I saw axe throwing and I was like, that's unusual, but I know what yeah. it is. I can imagine at least what it is. You're throwing an axe at a target, hopefully not a person. Um but what's been the most unusual sport in terms of, oh, I can't believe that's actually a sport or I don't even know what that is? I think axe throwing definitely stands out. Um, I went with my friend Mar, who was my first episode of the podcast yeah. for her birthday because we were open enough to have a private party of four. 
And our coach was Jenna, the girl who I interviewed, and she was giving us so many tips that at the end I was like, can I interview you for a podcast? And I found out all about the competitive world of axe throwing, the leagues, the prize money. And she's trying to get her mom to come on the podcast to talk about dragon boat racing. So I'm really excited for that oh, one. The China really, yeah, like okay, this. I, and that. One. I used yep. to row, so I only know this motion. Um, I would say, yeah, axe throwing definitely stands out. And barrel racing with Nancy Sabe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correct. That one was cool because in Alberta, it's almost like the Texas of Canada, people say. So she is a world champion barrel racer, which means she gets on a horse and they do time trials around barrels. And even if you like take a wide turn. That is turn, not it, what I thought it was when you yeah, said barrel like, racing. Yeah, it adds like a second to your time. And she's this champion. And now she breeds horses and has a ranch and teaches people. And listening to her talk about her sport, I was so inspired that for my birthday, I found like a horse ranch out in the middle of nowhere, just outside of Ottawa. And I went horseback riding for the first time because I was so inspired by her podcast. I've been horseback riding a couple of times. And each time I go, I swear to God, it's a loss because I come back and my tailbone feels like it's been shattered five oh. ways to Sunday. Um, can you, also, I'm not very elegant and like yourself, I'm very tall. So I don't think I'm quite made to sit on a horse, but what, what tips did you get from your axe throwing? I'm fascinated by this because I had a friend who put up a video of her axe throwing. She always loved ninjutsu, so it wasn't a surprise to see her doing that. What are the tips for axe throwing? Well, there's different placements. So the way that you, you step, for, you're supposed to hold the axe this way and you keep your elbows together as you put it over your head and you step forward and she'll actually help you. They have a line of where you should mm -hmm. roughly place yourself to throw the axe and she'll watch you and she'll be like, take a half a step back twist this with your arm. You're supposed to lunge and then follow through with the release and she'll literally watch you and she'll say, okay, you need to follow through this way. Okay, maybe you should try a one-arm throw. Maybe you should take half a step hmm. back so you get more spin. It was phenomenal. She just, I mean, I guess it's like me with dance. I can look and be like, okay, this needs to be fixed. That needs to be fixed. Yeah. We can make this better. Yeah. It was crazy how just the four of us doing a fun little axe throwing for a birthday party during COVID, we learned so much and I got a podcast out of it. So bonus. <laughs> I'm going to ask a complete newbie question here, but my thing with axe throwing is how do you make sure that it hits with the blade and not with the handle? You don't, um, especially as a newbie. Oh. <laughs> like I do axe throwing for fun. Sometimes the handle yeah. hits, it falls. Sometimes you think it's going to stick and it falls. Sometimes you miss the board completely. There's a lot of clinking on the ground. Sometimes you hit right. the board and you're like, woo. But I'd say even going recreationally, you're going to hit a bullseye at least once. And then you have to go up and be like, take my picture. I got a bullseye. But yeah, no, there's not a guarantee that the blade is going to hit every time. But you you wet the board with like a, a little squeeze bottle. So, because if the wood is dry, it's not going to stick. But if the wood has liquid in it, it'll be more absorbent to catch oh. the blade. Okay. All right. And you said you throw with two hands. So it's like an overhead yeah. kind of like yeah, this. Like this. And then you follow through. Oh, okay. I went one time a few years ago. I was doing yeah. really well with the one hand. Yeah, I would throws. just naturally go it like that. Yeah. But then they bring out the big axe at the end. It's huge and it's heavy and you have to oh. do that with two hands. Yeah. yeah you pick okay. it up and you fall over. Yeah. <laughs> It's not probably the first thing that comes into my mind wielding an axe that big is let me chuck it at something, but I guess someone yeah. had the idea. Um, and you said there are leagues and there, there's prize money, so it's actually a bona fide like, competitive sport. It is. Some leagues are more recreational, you know, like your Friday mm -hmm. night league, come hang out, yeah, let's just sure. throw. But then if you get your points to a certain level, then you can join, I guess, like bigger leagues and there's different levels, just like any kind of sport. And there's big prize money. And she said there's a lot of famous women in axe throwing because there's not that many women in axe throwing. You start mm -hmm. to know all the women. So people start cheering mm -hmm. the women on because you only have, what, one to five women to maybe cheer for. So yeah. we need more women in axe throwing and in every sport. Do the, yeah. do the women compete against the men? Yes. Ah, that's unusual because there aren't actually, I was thinking about this maybe a couple of weeks ago, there aren't many sports I mean, tennis, for example, you, you don't have the women competing against men, but it's unusual when you hear about a sport where the women will actually compete against the men. So that's something. Mm -hmm. Do any other sports come to mind? I mean, you've interviewed 40 athletes. Yeah, I'm just trying to mentally go through all of the sports that I've done. Bowling? Do, do 10 people yep, do bowling? Yep. Do they? I think right. bowling is. Yeah. 
Because uh, there aren't hmm. many. So when you said that, it's like, wow, that that's something. When you really think about it, I guess pole fitness can have men because pole mm -hmm. has so many different categories. There's like masters for above 50. There's low flow, which is floor work, more dancey. You don't climb or invert, which I love doing. There's exotic. Right. There's like your different levels. Um, so men and women can compete. It depends on the category though. Mm -hmm. um, so that one I would say can be co-ed. We have a guy at my studio. I mean, I haven't gone back with COVID and a few years before because my shoulder's yeah. not having fun, but he's in his early seventies and he pulls and he loves it. And he'll go to competitions and just everyone cheers him on because it's so cool. It's such a supportive environment to watch this guy just having the best time on stage doing these moves that you're like, okay, that's not fair. I can't even do that move. So, yeah. <laughs> It's not fair. I listened to the yoga, the yoga interview you did and um, talking about do you need to be flexible or not. When I was doing yoga a lot, there would be some older people there, let's just say, who would put me to shame. I mean, I'm not naturally flexible, but you, you write off these old people like, oh, they can do it. Surely I can do it. And then you try something and you end up on your face for your trouble. Um, I went skydiving probably actually a year ago, and there was a guy who was older, probably in his seventies or more, so much so that he couldn't get into the plane by himself because it's like a, you know, it's like a, it's a cardboard box, basically this plane, there's no gangway getting up to it. You need to jump up into it and he couldn't get up into it himself. Um, so his instructor was, was helping him, but, um, he jumped for the first time, actually, I think on his 90th birthday to give you an wow. idea. Can you imagine at the age of 90, when you'd like to think you've done everything to do something like skydiving? Yep for the Art very racing. first time yeah and um i know people who are 20 who wouldn't do that but he did it for the first time on his 90th birthday and wow. uh he was hooked on it he became hooked on it um it just uh, goes to yeah. show you that age is not a thing apparently you do get hooked we have an athlete who's a paralympic hopeful she hasn't been to a games yet in paracanoe she goes skydiving all the time that's actually how she acquired her injury and still now okay. she skydives She's oh, so much respect for that. Paraplegia so and still skydives. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. That, that That's quite often the case, even when you get badly injured from something that you're passionate about, you realize that that's just the way sometimes it goes and you still mm -hmm. stay passionate about it. Um, I mean, talking about the Paralympics, we should touch on that a little bit. I mean, it's all been pushed back a year. Um, mm -hmm. Tokyo Olympics, I think, just said they're not allowing any members of the public to attend the torch race for the Olympics, uh, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I understand it. I guess getting the Olympics is better than no Olympics. Um, yeah. What's it been like for you working with the Canadian Paralympic Committee coming up to, I mean, some of these athletes, they train their entire life, sometimes for 10 seconds. Um, yeah. What's it been like in the run-up for yourself? I mean... This has been different. I started with the Canadian Paralympic Committee three years ago. So my first games three months into a new job was going to Pyeongchang for the wow. Winter Paralympics. <laughs> and it, right. the Paralympics are usually two weeks after the Olympics. So at least I kind mm -hmm. of got to know what I was getting into. And then in 2019, I went to Lima, Peru for the Parapan American Games. Um, so this year, of course, has been different. Um, I think Canada has been very strong in what they're doing. I can't speak for the organization because I'm just in mm -hmm. communication, sharing stories of yep. the athletes. Sure. Um, it's obviously devastating, but it gives athletes sometimes more time to train. It has been challenging, you know, with things being closed and whatnot. The games will look different this year, but security and safety are always the most pressing concern. So we're planning some things on the back end. Things are going to be different, but um, it's just been announced that for the first time ever, the Paralympics are going to be prime time in Canada on CBC. Oh, wow. So if anyone Amazing. in Canada has CBC, tune into that because it's time. We've waited long enough. Let's see what our Canadian Paralympic athletes can do. And yep. I'm a little biased but I find the Paralympics way cooler than the Olympics for so many different reasons. So I'm excited that more Canadians can have access to seeing that. Can you, I don't know how, how many of the athletes that you've spoken to or, you know, their stories personally, but I mean, you've obviously interviewed people for your podcast um, in terms of the inspiration or the inspirational stories you hear from the Paralympic side of it. Can you give us an idea as to what, what that's like? I mean, I, one sport that pops to mind, 
I don't know if it's the official title of it, but it's called Murderball, which I think is either Dodgeball or... Yes, started in Canada. Oh, oh yes. did it? Um, and it is it hard, hard call. Um, these people in their wheelchairs going at it. It's almost like full contact sport. But in terms of the inspiration that you draw from meeting people like that, I mean, can you speak to that? Yes. So um, my job during the day is anything social digital. So our website, mm. um, any kind of social media, all of that um, broadcast. And then when I'm at the games, I'm actually interviewing athletes after they've competed. So I've gotten to know a lot of them. Um, wheelchair rugby or murder ball is intense. Um, mm. It's a high contact sport for people who are um, have paraplegia, no, quadriplegia, sorry. And that's intense because most people see other people with a disability as being fragile, which is not the case. Yeah. And then you see these guys just attacking each other and you're like, yeah, go for it. So if you don't know what wheelchair rugby is, please look it up. Um, in terms of stories, some people are born with their disability. So they just share you know, their experiences through life. Some acquire their disability. That's why a lot of Paralympians are older, typically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like our wheelchair curling team, they're mostly older. I've heard things like I've lost my leg due to cancer. I've heard things, Michelle Salt, a para snowboarder, she was at the first Paralympic games in Sochi when snowboard was on the program. And wow. she was doing fitness competitions and was in the best shape of her life. And she was on a motorcycle and it hit a guardrail and she went flying and it tore her femoral artery and a bunch of other things. Um, I can't tell her story quite like she does, but it's because she was in such great shape that she survived because she should have bled out. Oh yeah. In a but faster amount of time. If you tell your femoral artery, I think you've only got a few minutes before you're dead. So that's yeah. So she did survive. lose her leg, but mm. then she went to the Paralympics for Sochi and Pyeongchang and was the first female Canadian to compete in snowboard at a Paralympic Games. She's since retired, but it's stories like that, especially when yeah. you hear them tell it. And for Paralympics, we don't focus on the sad story if you will mm. like i find with the olympics you always want to hear the sad story of the athletes like to make them more relatable but with paralympians no we want to focus on how strong they are they've overcome mm. adversity and a year like this a year like a pandemic paralympians know what it's like to not have things maybe turn out the way you want or yeah to, to face what we're all facing right now maybe feeling isolated and so I think that's the best thing right now for the Paralympics to happen is people can relate to them now more than ever and get to know about these sports. Like you take downhill skiing. Okay, well, we have athletes with visual impairment going down who are blind with a guide in front of them going, okay, turn right, turn left, or wheelchair basketball. You're maneuvering a chair. The net is the same height and you still have to get the basket in while you yeah. are dealing with your sport chair. So Everything about the Paralympics is inspirational. I just love it. It makes me so happy to talk about it. We had a um, one of Australia's best um, wheelchair tennis players training with us probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And the only difference with wheelchair tennis, I don't know if you know, but the ball can bounce yep. twice. Yes, and you take so your hand to your racket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was playing against my boss, who was an able-bodied actual Canadian. Um, who and he was a good player, and I got to say it was an even match. But I like it boggles my mind that you can be in a wheelchair having to, because it's hard enough to run for the ball, having to get there in a wheelchair and then hit the ball and then turn around and then sometimes they fall out of the wheelchair and it is, I don't know, I don't know how some of these people do it. It's um, yeah, it's insane. I got to watch um, Rob Shaw at the Pair Pan American Games in Lima. He ended up winning gold for Canada. Woohoo! Um, but it was intense. I don't think I could ever, I don't think I have the coordination, like going back to gym class with the coordination to throw basketball into a net, you had a wheelchair into that. No, these are elite level athletes for sure. <laughs> it's elite, elite level athletes, but I think in some ways even beyond that, because I mean, like you mentioned, like doing downhill skiing when you can't see, that's not just that's not just you've got to be a talented athlete. You have to have a courage and a burning passion that is out of this world to trust someone that, mm -hmm. that you're, you're going to do that. Um, 
yeah, it, it, it's a it's a level beyond. I think. Uh, in terms of the pageant, has interviewing the, this many elite level athletes who train day in day out, sometimes for their entire life, um, has it? How has it impacted your views on pageants and your preparation for the pageant? Has it kind of put it into a different perspective for yourself? I think it's done a few things. The first is every single day at my work is Canada Day. It's always Team Canada, mm. Canadian athletes. So when I go to a pageant, nationally, yes, you're surrounded by people from your own country, but internationally, I'm like, I love Canada because it's literally what I think about all day, every day. And then in terms of interviewing people, I think it just helps me because interviewing people, yes, you can have guiding questions, but the best interviews mm. are when you're listening and you can take what the person has just said and apply it to the next question, which I think really helps with when I'm being interviewed in a pageant, because that's all it is. You're having a conversation with the judges. Yes, you're trying to get out little key points here and there, yeah. but you don't need to sit up like this and say exactly what <laughs> you think they want to hear because yeah. that's just so stuffy. So I think the fact that I interview people and I love to talk clearly helps with <laughs> pageant preparation. It helps with confidence. I can walk into a room and say, I don't know any of you, but let's have a conversation. And I think that really helps because pageants aren't always about what happens when you're on stage. A lot of it happens what's happening behind the scenes. So if you can be relatable mm. and carry a conversation and ask someone about themselves, like your judges are people too, I think that can really help in a pageant situation. So as someone who's interviewed a lot of people now, what would you say is, which one is harder for you or which one do you enjoy more, interviewing or being interviewed? I'm going to be fascinated to hear your, your answer Ooh. to this. See, that depends on the length of the interview. Like this I love, but when you have three minutes with the judge, you're like, no, I want more. Um, <laughs> I would say interviewing is harder mm -hmm. because you want the flow of the interview to go a certain way. So for me, when I interview someone, I want to hear about the beginning of their life and their sport journey, the middle, and we end with the positive words of encouragement. That's the flow yeah. my podcast usually goes through. Yeah. And if someone starts diverging, obviously I always listen to the answer. So I'm like, oh, that inspired me for my next question. But if we start diverging too far off that path, you're like, okay, how do I find a very nice segue to bring it back to the yeah. very loose timeline of the podcasts? Um, that happened in one podcast. It started getting a little negative, And every question I asked, expecting a positive answer, kept getting negative. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, now I'm listening. I'm trying to find my next question based on what you're saying, but we still want it to move along in a positive way. So interviewing stuff, it like I applaud you for doing this many interviews because people think it's just asking questions, but a lot goes into it. Whereas when you're being interviewed, you're just talking about yourself. And if you know yourself, that should be very easy. Yeah, I actually, it's interesting. It's fascinating to me. I feel exactly the same way for me. If I ever get interviewed, it's like a holiday because I, I don't need to think of any intelligent questions. I just answer things, which I know the answer mm -hmm. to. It's not like you're asking me for a solution to some really difficult maths problem. It's like, tell me about your story. And that, that's super easy. Um, I mean, you said you, you like to talk a lot. And I know that you said that you're very extroverted. <laughs> On that note, what's been the hardest part? What's, what have you found the most challenging part in terms of interviewing other people? Has it? I, I don't think you strike me as someone who doesn't listen because in one podcast, I think it was when you were interviewing the yoga, the yoga um, instructor, you were almost silent for like a good 20 minutes. So I don't think you strike me as someone who doesn't know how to listen. So what's been the hardest part or the hardest thing for you to learn as interviewing? Yeah, I think the the listening comes from as a kid, I would always poke my mom going, mom, mom, and she'd be like, just wait. And originally, when I started interviewing athletes, I would do the I would do the questions and I wouldn't diverge from it. And then I listened to my director interview an athlete. And I was like, he didn't look at the sheet of paper. He didn't check any of the boxes what I thought we were going to get. And it opened my eyes. It opened my mm -hmm. eyes to the way of interviewing that yeah, I can have guiding questions that usually helps the interviewee if they feel, oops, sorry, if they feel a little bit nervous. But the best interviewers just listen. Like if you're an interviewer and you're talking too much, it's not quite an interview. So I'd say the hardest thing sometimes, yeah, you're sitting and you're like, okay, what's my next intelligent question that I need to ask them? Um, 
I would say that's pretty much the hardest thing about interviewing for me is if I even if I have too many questions, I'm like, okay, you said three things that trigger my mind in that answer. And I want to ask all three, but what's the best way that I can order them to keep the flow going? Uh, let me let me ask you this and then we'll move to the close. It, you've done about 40 interviews, give or take. Can you give people, because there are a few pageant girls um, and a few people in the world who during lockdown have started a podcast or an interview show. And I think it's a great idea because it gives you a chance to to get other people's stories, which I think as an interviewer, if you don't have an interest in that, there's no point. Don't start an interview show. Um, can you give us an idea as to, so you said you started with a list of questions and then you said you had your eyes opened and, and moved away a little bit from that. When, give us an idea with a timeline. When did you start becoming more comfortable that you knew what you were doing as an interviewer? Was it episode five? Was it episode 20? Do you still feel like you have no idea what you're doing at episode 40? What's been the timeline for yourself? I think it helped episode one that I was interviewing one of my best friends. Um, at the beginning, work. every person I reached out to, I knew personally. I had met them, we had hung out, we're friends. So I think that really helped. So I don't think I went through that phase of, I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe technically I was like, how do I upload a podcast? But I think <laughs> yeah. it came through work. Through work, when I went to Korea, I was three months into the job. I was standing, I had three months to learn all the athletes, all of their stories, everything. I'm standing in the media zone, not knowing if I'm in the right place. And I was like, so tell me about your race. And that was it. And I was like, oh. and I'm interviewing bilingually too. So that's also oh, challenging, God. mixing the two languages. And it wasn't until I had that moment. Um, we do media car washes before games. So the one for Tokyo actually happened January 2020, where we bring select athletes from different sports all to Toronto at the same time. And they have a day where they go from room to room. So maybe we're in one room, CBC's oh, in the other, right. Radio Canada and all the partners. Yeah. And my first year doing it, I stuck to my script. I stuck to the list. I got what I knew I needed to get. And then this past, not this past year, but January 2020, I was in a room with my executive director and one of our retired athletes who also does a lot of corresponding and hosting for us. And the three of us were kind of rotating. And I was more like producing, I guess, making sure we got what we needed on time because we had different segments to film. And it was listening to him because he's known some of these athletes for decades because he's yeah. been in the world so long. And he just talks to them like a normal conversation. It doesn't feel like an interview, it just feels like talking. And he'll take what you said and make that his next question instead of going, tell me about diversity and inclusion. Tell me about being a woman in yeah. sport. He wasn't ticking yeah. those boxes. He was just talking. And for me, that's where it clicked. And I took that. And not only do I mm -hmm. use it for my work interviews, but that's immediately how I started my podcasts. Yeah. Have you actually, I, I find that I'm very unusual in terms of I have like interview role models, as in people who interview who I think do it very, very well. Um, to give you an example, Graham Norton, I think he's a mm. fantastic interviewer. Um, back in the day, uh, Parkinson, uh, he was an amazing interviewer. And he went through a similar journey to what you said yourself. He used to go with leading questions. And then um, one very famous actor, I can't remember his name, basically walked into, he, it was a really big actor, as in terms of if this interview went well, Parkinson was going to be set for life. So he was really nervous in his change room, had the list of questions. He was going over it. This actor walks in and he goes, um, are you Parkinson? And he goes, oh, yes, sir. And are those are questions. And he goes, yes. Can I have a look? Sure. Give him, gives the actor the questions and he tears it up in front of him and says, let's chat. And so from that very first interview, Parkinson had it drilled into him that it was a conversation, not an interview as such. Mm -hmm. Um, have you looked at any other interview words and sort of gone, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you, you just then that you took apart from someone else. Have you looked at any other interviewers? I think growing up, um, we watched a lot of Inside the Actors Studio. So that's kind of where yeah, he's I got... a very good one as well. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of where I got that base interviewer. Honestly, it's I'm around interviewers all day, every day at work. So being so close to people and seeing their interview yeah. styles, like, of course, I'm going to say people like Oprah and Graham Norton and mm -hmm. Jimmy Fallon and Ellen, like they're all great mm -hmm. interviewers, but especially since it's niche, we're talking Paris sport and we're talking people's personal journeys that have had so many different yeah. levels. The people who I surround myself with at work are the people who've inspired me most when it comes to interviewing.
Uh, okay. If you hear noise in the background, that's because there's a loud generator started up outside. So I'll take that as a sign to move towards the close. Uh, just before we do so, Aaron, um, is there anyone that you want to give a shout out to for supporting you along your journey, badge and, and otherwise? Oh my goodness. Um, everybody, I'd like to thank my mom and my family, every designer that I've worked with, especially Ikaj, all my pageant coaches, um, Natalie, Angel, Amber, my makeup artist, Serena, any pageant sister, any pageant director, Harleek, who's sending me to Miss Elite. If you've crossed paths with me, I thank you because you've made me the person that I am today and you've given me the opportunities to do all the amazing things. And I'd like to thank everyone who's ever been on the You Go Girl podcast and for sharing their story. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Aaron, let's do this. It's not a speed round, but you can take it as a speed round if you want. Okay. See if you can be competitive. <laughs> All right. I'm ready. And given that you know the Inside the Actor Studio, these are the Inside the Actor Studio questions. Hey. So you've probably thought of the answers to them. So number one, what is your favorite word? Can it be a phrase? Okay. Sparkle and shine. It's something that my mother tells me. Every time before I perform or compete, she writes it in cards when I travel because if you're having the best time on stage, everyone else will just feel that radiating positivity. What is your least favorite word? Moist. I don't like it. It's just gross. I can't. It reminds me of Putin, but we'll move on. Question three, in life, what gets you excited? What turns you on? Energy, just the idea to go produce energy. Um, I will do absolutely anything. I'll go for any activity, do any bucket list thing, whether small, large, or medium, anything that produces energy. So basically not sitting on the couch watching Netflix all night. So basically not the pandemic that we're, we've just, we're going through. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Fair. What turns you off? Negativity. I think life is too short for negativity. If you have a negative thought, you can acknowledge it and release it. But people who dwell on negativity are not people you should be having around in your life. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, man. There's so many sounds. I love the sound of hearing my family. And I also love the sound of the alarm on my phone when I know I have cookies in the oven. I love to bake. <laughs> Do you make them from scratch? Or are you talking about like oh, pre-bought cookie dough here? Oh no, I bake every. I bake my pies from scratch, my cakes, cupcakes, cookies. You name it. I take courses at Le Cordon Bleu here in Ottawa to make sure that my baking skills are perfected. Okay, there you go. Someone's French, definitely the French blood in you. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? My alarm when I have to wake up. It's the same sound, isn't it? As yes, the, but the cookies. It means very it different means things. Different. Yes, if there's cookies in the oven versus waking up early in the morning, I'm a total night owl and I would rather sleep in. Okay, so if you had one of those fancy ovens that you can set to switch on by itself and you timed it so that when your wake-up alarm went off, there were actually cookies Ooh. ready for you, would you feel excited? Would you feel like you want to go back to bed? What would you feel at that moment? I mean, I wouldn't want to burn the cookies, so I'd probably get up. Um, but if I had cookies every day for breakfast, I don't think I can compete in pageants because I'd be way too big <laughs> to feel confident on stage. Special treats, special treats only. Yeah. You'd be rolling out the door. Uh, now, yeah. question seven in Inside the Actors Studio normally has to be, what's your favorite curse word? I quickly worked out after my first pageant interview, I couldn't ask that. So I replaced it with, if you could have any one superhero power, what would you pick and why? I would pick teleportation. I absolutely love to travel. My mom, my grandpa was with the Foreign Service. So my mom grew up in London and Tokyo. Wow. I've never been. I was supposed to go to London last year, pre-pandemic, and Tokyo, of course, this year. But I'll be mm -hmm. isolated in a tiny little room. So just to be able to snap my fingers and be anywhere in the world and experience other cultures, their music, their arts, their shopping, um, that's what I would choose for sure. The shopping. It's a hard You can life. learn so I much about a culture from their shopping. From the things that they sell and when i say shopping i don't mean big box stores i mean artisans um people making things with their uh, hands everywhere okay. i travel i buy a painting i buy a piece of jewelry i want authentic things to support the local artists uh well you you would find japan fascinating then because my parents have been there and they come back with for example mochis 
but mm-hmm. the people who made the mochis also made a box out of bamboo for them. And oh, there's always wow. a story behind it. Everything in Japan has a meaning. So mm-hmm. it's if you like that sort of thing, then you're going to absolutely yes. love Japan. Um, my mom's eight, place and my grandparents' what? place both look like Japan exploded because they have everything from when they lived there. So there's lots of oh, Japanese wow. I, influence in my life. That's definitely top of my list on countries that I want to go to is Japan. Um, question eight, what job or occupation other than your own would you most like to attempt? This is my dream job currently but i've always said that whatever my dream job is it mixes business with creativity Um, my boss calls me a unicorn because i'm very creative but organized so it could be anything from media correspondence with e-talk or maybe hosting a sports podcast full-time being a producer for music videos as long as it's business and creativity it's my dream job Mm. so i'm technically in my dream job right now a unicorn that's a good way of putting it because those two are normally seen as you have to be either or. So I do understand where he's coming from. Um, what job would you definitely not like to attempt? Um, an accountant or anything that involves math. I am not strong in the mathematical department. Not at all. I wouldn't like it. Do you Canadians say math or do you say maths? We say math. No S. Oh, so you're like the Americans. Okay, I thought it was just the Americans who said math. Okay. No, we're pretty much British know. for everything else, like the way we spell color and neighbor. Um, yeah. Our lieutenant is lieutenant, but mm-hmm. yeah, we say math. Oh. Do you use um, do you use metric or imperial? Metric. Like, do you use miles like, or kilometers? Kilometers. We're like half and half. That's yeah. Very confusing. Like it's Celsius. somewhere in between. Yeah, it's somewhere in between Celsius the UK and America. And, yeah. Okay. And then right. it, and then measurements differ depending on what you're measuring. So, yeah. Very okay. confusing. Yeah. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Your dog is waiting for you. I lost my dog um, 2019. I had just come back from Miss Glam World in India He wasn't doing so well. He was staying with my father. I had him back for three days. And in those three days, I knew he was saying goodbye. He waited for me to come back from the pageant. And he was 16, my little Toffee. He was a good boy. But if if there is a heaven up there, I would want Toffee to be there waiting for me. Well, Aaron, that's about it. I'm about to be inundated with someone who's using a high-pressure hose. So thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to talk to you and virtually meet you. I have both of your books. I'm super excited to continue reading those. And thank you so much for interviewing all these pageant girls and sharing their stories. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, if you need something to to read on your flight over or back, you have now 1,600 pages to read. So that I got will both. take you. It's probably a bit longer than your children's book, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't recommend doing it in two weeks. I put that whole yeah. thing together in two weeks. Don't recommend. Yeah. Uh, but I'll keep, I'll keep you on the line for just a sec whilst I hang out with the audience. Thank you so much to everyone for watching or listening, whether it's live or on the replay. And we will speak to you next time. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for watching. Hope you enjoyed. Remember, Confessions is out. To get your copy from Amazon, head to shaw.b forward slash confessions book. And I'll see you next time.